Welcome to On DoD on Federal News Radio 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. Now, your host, Jared Serbu. And glad you're with us this week. It's now been a little over a year since the Army issued a highly prescriptive directive telling its commands and installations exactly which applications needed to move from which data centers, which data centers had to be closed, and when. But it became clear pretty quickly that a lot of those applications simply weren't ready to move. In many cases, their design was too antiquated to run in a modern cloud computing environment. One solution to that problem has been Altez, something of a hybrid between a traditional data center and a cloud environment the Army operates in Radford, Virginia. Aside from hosting some of those applications until their owners find final target environments for them, Altez also helps to modernize them and handles cybersecurity and sustainment services, too. Our guest to talk about all this is Tim Hale, the director of Army Altez. All right, Tim, first of all, for uh, thanks for being here. Uh, I, I want to start off with just a little bit of background about Altes. I, I know the physical facility that you're located in has been around since really the start of the Cold War and, and functioning in the data storage, data management business. Things have obviously evolved a lot since then, but particularly, I think, in just the last few years. Um, why don't you start us off just a little bit with, with just a little bit of a primer on, on what you see Altes's function and mission being as of the start of 2018. Yeah, hey, thanks, Jared, for having me. And uh, sure, yeah, Altes has been around since 1959. Uh, it's uh, evolved, obviously, but it's uh, mostly for the last uh, 10 years or so been a on-premise brick-and-mortar data facility hosting uh a number of different Army applications. We're an Army organization, but uh, we also host uh, other branches and, and DOD customers as well. But uh, although we're primarily known as a as a data center, we also do a full range of, of uh, information technology solutions and, and services, everything from writing applications to uh, modernizing applications and doing cybersecurity for them. And of course, the Army is trying to get out of the data center business and, and close and consolidate. What makes Altes different than some of those that are at the moment being targeted for, for shutdown? I mean, what, what services, what attributes do you provide that are, that are different from, from some of those that are seen as <laughs> bad, for lack of a better word? Yeah, sure. We're, we're actually uh, a lot different than most of the data centers that that popped up over the years for the army literally hundreds of them at every different installation we've always been a cloud entity if you will because we we support uh customers all over the world and uh we we while most of them don't they just support their internal customers on post we we support the entire uh army and the department of defense so while a lot of these were smaller data facilities, we're a, we're a full up uh, 40,000 square foot uh, fully operational data center right now. And, and on top of that, we, we provide all those other enterprise information uh, technology services that, that you would look for from traditional industry partners. Yeah, talk us through what some of those services are. Yeah, some of them, like for example, uh, a lot of these uh, Army application uh, owners are being forced out of these these older data centers and their applications been running smoothly for years, but they have not been modernized at all. So they're not cloud ready. They're, they're not within 
certain cybersecurity requirements. They just haven't been touched in years. Some of them are old code uh, written on, on extinct software uh, code, and they, they call us up, and, and we take a look and do a full-up detailed assessment of their application and, and give them a, a, a vulnerability uh, report, and we go ahead and tell them if they don't have a system integrator that Altes uh, government folks can, can also do that job and modernize them and seamlessly move them on to wherever uh, their final hosting uh, facility is, whether it be out in the commercial cloud or uh, a enduring uh, government data center. And I know that you've, you've also described Altes as the Army's cloud already. Talk me through that a little bit. How can you be both... Um, a cloud and a data center at the same time. What are the attributes of Altest that you see as as cloud-like? Yeah, sure. Well, uh, and NIST defines what a cloud is for us. So there's, there's not really any guesswork. And I like to tell people Altest was kind of like a cloud before there was a cloud uh, because we supported external customers, which was one of those attributes. And, and then there were different things like uh, dynamically provisioning uh, different uh, uh, customers per their load. We do it a little differently, and the federal government can't really fund on-demand usage the way uh, some uh, cloud service guys uh, like to define that. Uh, But we actually have, we're 90% virtual, so we have shared resources going out to all the the, uh, different customers, and we're really the only attribute that that, uh, a traditional cloud industry uh, commercial vendor provides that we don't is dynamic provisioning. In other words, customers can't really come and sit uh, externally and provision up and down their their enclave. They they have to come see us first. And out in the uh, industrial world, uh, that, that is offered, but I don't see any government agency allowing that to happen. Why is that? It's just it's a security problem about who you give permission and elevated permissions uh, to to get into your behind your firewalls and and up and uh, upload and download different uh, uh, provisioning as far as the the servers are concerned. I see. And let let me go back to something you mentioned a little bit uh, ago, which is that uh, the government can't really fund on-demand usage the way that the commercial providers do. In the case of Altest, what's the alternative? How do your customers, or how how do you bill your customers, and 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 how do you get how do you get to something close to uh, on-demand cloud-like provisioning while living within sort of federal funding formulas? Yeah, yeah, right. It's, so it's interesting because uh, while we want to get to that, it's it, you know try to get to uh, uh, IT services almost like a utility. Uh, the government doesn't get funded that way. We, you know, have monies and different fiscal laws that we have to adhere, adhere to, and and we don't really get paid monthly, right? We get paid in uh, chunks at the beginning of the fiscal year if we if we have a budget, but uh, we don't get funded incrementally in order to do that, and uh, especially you know real time. So uh, you could have something where uh, you, you get to a point. And September 30th, you find out that you used only X amount of the resources that you paid for, and the guy goes, okay, we owe you $100,000 because you didn't use all the resources that we thought you were going to use, but it's expiring the next day. And that's just the way the federal government gets funded. So 
what we do is we take historic uh, data and usage and then kind of average it out over the year. Interesting. So let, let, let's talk about some of those cloud-like attributes that we that we raised earlier. And, and specifically, I'm curious, The I mean, you mentioned that, that Altest was cloud before there really was a cloud, as there has been more and more cloud in the commercial environment. To what extent have you adopted those commercial best practices and specific technologies that we might see in a, in a commercial hosting facility? Well, one of them is, you know, the resource pooling. So all the hardware inside the data center is basically pulled between the different customers. We have a few customers that still want their, you know, one physical rack and looks like an old traditional brick and mortar data center just because of their their mission uh and they prefer that, but for the most part we're we're totally virtual and we have shared resources and gives us more storage and compute power than uh, just like a commercial cloud. Uh and then uh, being as far as being elastic and, and being able to expand, we don't really do it dynamically, like on demand, like I said before, but we do. We are a phone call away, and we do do that. We have different customers that, that surge at different times. We have one that, you know, does the human resources of uh, the acquisition core for their reports on personnel, and that surges mostly three times a year, at the beginning of the fiscal year, the middle of the fiscal year, and then the end of the fiscal year. Uh, so people can get their evaluations, and we know that. So we just we just call up the customer and make sure that those resources are uh, elastic and and gives them the the uh, compute and storage that they need during those search periods. So in that way, we are very much like a a commercial cloud and uh, being able to to ramp up and ramp down to, to serve the customer's needs. How about specific technologies? I mean, to what degree have you incorporated? Um, you know vendor created things that live in a commercial cloud environment into Altes and, and to what extent is this uh, government unique technology uh, down there in Radford? Yeah, I mean, nothing's really government unique. Everything's uh, from industry and we have an industry partner in IBM that uh, pretty much uh, helps us with the run in the data center. We got about 150 contract personnel and about 50 government personnel uh, and then, uh, you know, they actually keep us to the state of the art. So uh, if different virtual machines come along that are better and we get new customers, we get to upgrade them. And there's actually a, uh, a move towards uh, doing most of the compute and storage as a service. In other words, uh, the government not owning uh, the actual hardware inside a data center and letting uh, the the industry partner actually buy the hardware so that it, it does get to the state of the heart and uh, you actually have more flexibility that way with the different types of money and, and funding that comes in. But it, mostly to your point, we're just a, we're, we, we've evolved from that old brick and mortar mainframe to a virtual environment just like uh, commercial clouds are now. Just to be clear on that on that last point, when you say a move toward the government not owning the, the hardware, do you mean Altes not even owning the hardware or your end customers not owning the hardware? Both. I mean, so we would have a, uh, a service partner in like IBM, like we have right now. And mm -hmm. actually in our current contract, we do do storage as a service, which means when a customer comes in and he needs more storage, IBM actually bills us and goes and buys the hardware. They own the hardware. They're just using our uh, facilities to do that. And there's actually one uh, called the Army Private Cloud Environment down in Huntsville that is uh, the model where 
uh, it's not quite a cocoa. I kind of invited a, invented a new word of go cocoa. So they have some government-owned <laughs> infrastructure, uh, but inside the data center, it's all commercially owned and commercially operated. And that's kind of the model that, that the Army's trying to shift to right now so that uh, we get out of the ever – uh, strategic chase of keeping up with the state of the art. We let industry uh, actually go out and and buy stuff to the requirement. Tim Hale is the director of Army Altes. We'll come back and talk more about how his organization is helping to modernize the Army's applications and some of the possible enduring roles for Altes after those applications move on to commercial cloud environments or elsewhere. This is On DoD on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm Jared Serviv. Back on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM, this is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. As we get back to our conversation with Tim Hale, the director of Army Altes, one of the Army's premier data centers, also what he calls a full-service cloud staging area for applications that aren't quite ready to move to the commercial cloud. So let's talk a bit about how Altes fits in with the overall Army data center consolidation plan. There was a, a memo uh, that, that mo- most people have seen by now from then-Secretary Eric Fanning that was highly directive in telling individual commands and installations to shut down their data centers and, and move to new, as the Army calls it, target environments. Where does Altes fit in there? Because I believe the, uh, your, your organization was specifically called out uh, in, in, a, in, a, in the term modernization hub. That's what the Army wants you to be. What does that mean to you? That's right. So, yeah, in that memo uh, of it, you know, Secretary Fanning was very direct and, and put dates on, on on the calendar and said, you will be closed by this time. And uh, Altes was not uh, listed as an enduring data center, but we're the only one on the list that does not have a date. And there's some good reason for that, but uh, and that's going to be re-looked at and whether or not our mission evolves uh, probably in the next three to five years. Uh, but the modernization mission is uh, pretty unique in that, uh, like I said earlier, a lot of these applications that are having to leave their traditional hosting facilities have not been touched in years, so they're in great need of modernization. So that's actually taking in and assessing the details of the codes, looking at vulnerabilities uh, from a cybersecurity perspective, uh, and then actually uh, the plan right now for us is to do that detailed assessment if they're in need of staging area or moving immediately, we can take that application and move it to Altez uh, and then fix it, so modernize it, in other words, so that it is cloud-ready. Uh, and then when they get, say, a contractor uh, contract-approved facility to go to, say it's an off-prem commercial site, we seamlessly would move them at that point. And then there's another need on the other side of it with uh, information technology services in uh, what would the inherently governmental work of cybersecurity and some of the common services provided like uh, uh, authorizations and authentications, uh, and then also um, different managed services like uh, continually updating and making sure that it's, it's uh, protected. So it sounds like your role is both sort of a waypoint for customers who are trying to eventually get to the com- uh, commercial cloud, and at least for now, a target environment for, on a semi-permanent basis, at least for some applications. Is that right? And is it is it more one than the other? 
No, that, that's accurate. I, you know, I've heard it called staging. I've heard it called hoteling. Uh, Waypoint, that's new, but that, that works too. I mean, we're, we really are a good place for, for customers that are in need of uh, some kind of temporary place to, to house something until they move on to a more permanent solution. Uh, and some of them, like, uh, we, we will probably always do some sort of hosting for a test and development customer where they're not actually in the production, but uh, some of the stuff like cybersecurity, uh, defensive cyber operations are looking towards our facility to be uh, a test and development assist, uh, uh, enclave so that they can continuously develop and continuously improve their application. So they're, they're never really done with the application. So they would, they would work on it here and then they would send it off to wherever the production facility is. It's actually a, uh, up-and-coming thing right now that uh, even industry is adapting. So this uh, continuous development and continuous improvement. But I see that uh, no matter what, how the uh, consolidation falls out, that all tests will have some sort of data center-like mission, uh, but it won't be the traditional brick-and-mortar hosting facility that it, that it is now. So that's interesting. Let's let's talk about that a bit. I mean, in your view, is it true that basically, I don't even want to say all, but 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 some large number of applications that eventually do move into a commercial environment are going to need some ongoing sustainment on the government side that the mission owner may not necessarily want to be involved in and, and would like to outsource to another government entity? Does that question make sense? No, yeah, that's a great point. That's exactly true. And there are a ton. I mean, we're talking anywhere from between ten and 20,000 application owners out there that are, that are not resourced or they don't have that subject matter expertise uh, to do that kind of uh, work. And they do want either an industry partner to, as a system in, uh, integrator to do that work for them or a place like Altez, to a government agency doing a government-to-government business transition where we do take care of everything, uh, cradle-to-grave enterprise services for them. And honestly, it doesn't matter where the data resides. It could be out in the commercial cloud. It could be an on-premise brick-and-mortar traditional data facility. But they're always in need of some sustainment, right, to, to keep modernized, to keep updated, and to keep within the compliance of the cybersecurity. Uh, one thing that's a given that uh, – it doesn't matter where the data sits. It's all going to have to be protected just like it, it is today. And you used the magic words inherently governmental a few minutes ago, which suggests that you think that there's some of this that just probably is never going to be able to outsource, never be able to be outsourced to a commercial systems integrator. Can you give me some examples of what you think those inherently governmental sustainment things are going to be? Yeah, actually, there's a there's a memo out that was sent out by the DOD CIO G6 that specifically spells out what industry can do in the way of cybersecurity and what what different things are uh, inherently governmental. And like most things, uh, they mostly fall on the side of uh, industry can do a lot of this work, and if, whether or not they're postured or whether or not they want to do that work or assume that kind of risk is a is a business decision. Uh, I don't have that memo in front of me right now, but I think it's public and and it's out there and there's a chart in there and it, it spells out exactly what is inherently governmental and, and what industry can do. And, you know, there's probably going to be a hybrid, uh, some some kind of business uh, plan in the future that uh, spells out and, 
kind of works its way through as all these applications go out into the commercial world and and we figure out what what the government's going to do and what uh what the industry is going to do i mean one of the things that's obvious is the monitoring of these applications there's a you know some of the cybersecurity service providers uh like uh up at netcom and disa arl has one um and we are piloting a program right now uh to be able to do those services for both Amazon and Azure and then other uh, commercial cloud providers as, as uh, they mature also. So uh, I can't give you specifically which ones, what's inherently governmental, but uh, that, that memo is out there and uh, it, it spells it out for industry to take a look at and see if there's a, there's a business model in there for, for them to be had. So while we're on the topic of cybersecurity, we should, we should probably talk about how, how, uh, you know what what capabilities you have and uh, you know on the high end it's it's probably not right to talk about you guys in terms of the the cloud security model you know level three four five six since you're a, a government facility but but how do those things interact are you able to go up to the secret top secret levels yeah we do have a classified side we host both uh Sipper and nepper here and but honestly uh there's a lot of talk in, of the future of commercial providers being able to go out there. When, when that happens, I'm not sure, but uh, they are definitely working at IL level five right now for for uh, commercial entities. And whether you know whether or not they get to the secret and top secret uh, place later, uh, that's TBD right now. But uh, I think that as those technologies mature and the, and the way we do cybersecurity, uh, it probably won't matter where the data is hosted as long as we, we protect it the same, no matter where it's at. Tim Hale is the director of Army Altez in Radford, Virginia. He's back with us for one more segment after another short break on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. This is On DoD. I'm Jared Serbin. Back on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM, this is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. Tim Hale is back with us for a few more minutes. We're talking about the facility he leads for the Army in Radford, Virginia, Altez, part of the Program Executive Office for Enterprise Information Systems. As we've been discussing, that data center has been around since 1959. Lately, it's evolved to adopt more modern cloud technologies like virtualization, resource pooling, and one of the main missions has suddenly become to temporarily host Army applications that are being forced to move out of the service's legacy data centers, but aren't yet modernized enough to operate in a full commercial cloud environment. Can you give me some sense of costs? Uh, I, I don't know if you guys have costed out, you know, what it would cost an Army customer to move to Altes versus what it would cost for them to go directly to the commercial cloud. And, and, I, and I suppose to some extent, it's comparing apples and oranges if you're also providing some sustainment services that commercial industry can't. But can you give me some sense of, of what an Army customer could expect to pay compared to the commercial side and, and how competitive you are? Yeah, sure, actually, and, and you're right on. There's been a lot of uh, work out there and cost modeling that is actually doing apples to oranges when they're looking at, at what Altez does, which is an enterprise IT service thing versus just storage and computing, uh, which is what the commercial cloud guys are giving you. They are just giving you the infrastructure of, you know, compute and storage. And, and they say that for this many 
it's this much data and this much work, this is what you're going to pay per month. Uh, what, what is not being said is all the common services and managed services and cybersecurity that goes behind that that these commercial cloud providers don't even really want to get in the business of doing. Uh, so we have kind of uh, looked at the cost comparisons, and we actually looked across uh, some of the commercial clouds, and we are almost dead even, almost uh, dead even as far as just a compute and store uh, thing of, of being able to, to uh, provide those hosting services. Uh, it's not until you get into the ambiguity of what, you know, boutique services a customer needs. So it also de depends on the size of the application and, and how much care and feeding it does need in uh, sustainment. We've got some enterprise applications that they pay us $3, 4000000 million a year to do all that work for, and we've got some that, that we charge, you know, five ten thousand $10,000 just as a, a public-facing website that doesn't, doesn't require very much services and very much maintenance. Interesting. So we're, we're always interested in anecdotes and success stories to, to the extent you can provide them. You don't necessarily have to mention specific customers, but can you give me a case study of some kind, if you could, just to, just to walk us through how a typical customer, to the extent there is a typical customer, would, would, would come to Altes and have their, have their applications uh, modernized and, and you know, successfully transplanted into this cloud, at least cloud-like environment? Yeah, sure. We we have a full up service level management division. We use the ITIL model uh, where a customer calls us up. Sometimes uh, they call us kind of late in the process and, and they need a lot of help because their facility might be closing or, or their platforms broke or, or something triggered something uh, that this government customer, need, customer needs help. And uh, we uh, would take a look at that and find out uh, exactly what their requirements are, how big the, the application is that they're looking at. And then we do a detailed assessment of that application. And then I have a whole engineering shop that takes a look at it and starts building uh, the actual uh, virtualized environment specified, detailed for that customer. Uh, and then whether or not uh, their requirement demands it or not, then we take over the entire life cycle of that application, and sometimes they might have an industry partner that does all the system integration work uh, themselves. And once we actually take that, we assess it, we modernize it, or the system integrator modernize it, we bring it up online, and then uh, either we or uh, the application owner's industry partner, or in some cases they do have resources inside their own government, but then they take care of the sustainment part of it. So we've got a couple of... Uh, things right now that are that are very hot uh that that we have uh just gotten to because people have kind of you know either dragged their feet or or they just got kind of surprised or they didn't have the funding and then they got to a point where uh the application needed to leave a facility very quickly uh and then we had to take a look at it and and actually uh modernize it and then move it into our facility asap because they didn't have any any place else to go to that point, the fanning memo that we that we discussed a few minutes ago really was about okay. It's time to stop foot dragging. It's time to stop procrastinating, and thou shalt move. How much has your workload picked up since that memo was signed out? We grew more last year than we ever have. Actually, we we grew about twenty percent from different customers that needed 
either a temporary or permanent uh, facility. So when that, that memo came out, I think that a lot of folks had to do their own individual assessments, and, and they find out that while in the past a lot of stuff was core funded, so in other words, the Army was funding different uh, application owners, and now it's on the application owner to actually uh, modernize and move that, that, that application, and it has to come out of their, their own funds. And none of them were really postured to be able to, to do that. They, you know, palms are five-year cycles, and no one really palmed for that. So a lot of the uh, application owners and the reason that, that it's been a slow process so far is just purely because of resourcing and, and having to actually provide the funds to do that, that work, the modernization and the move. It's not a lot of people might say, you know, lift and shift, just take it out of that facility and put it over there. Well, you, that just doesn't work for 99% of the applications. I don't know if there's applicability here or not, but I'm just curious the extent to which continuing resolutions play into what you were just talking about and the overall hesitancy of people to spend money without knowing what they're going to get for an FY. Yeah, I mean, we're so used to the CRs now that, that we kind of work our way around them. And win yeah, the that's everybody's and, answer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Altez is actually, we, we actually went from a fiscal year uh model for when our customers pay us to a calendar year model because most of them aren't getting funds until January anyway. So uh, that's one way that we've kind of worked around it. Um, but yeah, the CRs are just a, a level of reality right now that, that folks have to work around. Let me circle back to some of the, the services you were just mentioning before we started talking about um, money, because some of them sound like they overlap a little bit with what I in, with what in my head is the mission of AMBO, or the, the Army Application Modernization Business Office, I think, which is supposed to kind of advise mission owners on what they need to do to, to, get their, to get their apps ready for a target environment and then advise them on how to find a target environment. How, how do you mesh with AMBO? Do they, at, at some point, hand things off to you? Do you complement each other? How does that all work? So, yeah, we complement each other. We're actually in the same organization. So uh, AMBO and, and Altes work for the same uh, GS-15 boss. Uh, we're in the, the same division of PEOEIS, and, and we do work together. They, they actually might be the first point of contact and from an application owner that has to move, and they've got an application that's actually hosted at, at Altes that does a certain amount of assessment. Uh, whether or not they're cloud ready and and how much uh, they give them maybe an IGCE of what it might cost to move to a commercial cloud. Uh, and then there's a enterprise contract actually in place that, that AMBO has that called Accent that actually uh, when customers are ready to, to uh, move and get a contracted uh, private cloud environment, they actually do the uh, do the contract award for that. So there's like 80 applications right now out of the JSP, out of the Pentagon that have to move. And AMBO went through the whole process of, of awarding them uh, a, guy, a company that's going to migrate them and then uh, land them into the, uh, the hosting environment. The winner in this case was Microsoft Azure. So there's a, there is a lot of work that we do together. Uh, and at AMBO, actually, uh, most of the forces, they just stood up a new organization over in uh, NETCOM, and they're going to use the Army Enterprise Service Desk to actually uh, initiate a ticket for application owners that need to move, and then ECOSC reaches out to either an Altez or uh, some other 
organization to actually help them along the process to, to move. All right, Tim, and just to wrap us up, uh, what, talk, to, talk with me just a little bit about what you see Altez's near-term challenges, opportunities being. As you kind of indicated earlier, there's still some kind of question about what, what the organization's long-term role is going to be as the Army continues down this whole data center consolidation journey. But, but what do you know about the outlook as far as you can see it? Yeah, it's that's that's a good point that you know our biggest challenge is really settling in on what our strategic long-term mission is going to be. Uh while we might not we might stop being a traditional brick and mortar uh hosting facility, we're not going anywhere. So, you know, I have close to 50 government civilians that work here in in Radford, Virginia and about 160 uh contractors and and they're going to be gainfully employed doing something. Probably most likely, uh, some of the things that keep coming up that, that is pulling me in the, the certain direction is the cybersecurity services for the commercial cloud migrants, uh, and then providing common services and managed services for those guys that, that do move. So we're going to be, uh, if you will, a migration concierge. So if you're a government entity and you're looking for a home, uh, you give us a call, we'll give you an estimate of what it's going to take to assess, move, uh, fix, and then seamlessly move again to your final hosting facility, and then uh, we'll provide you the, the uh, different menu of services that we could provide if, if you need them while you're in whatever landing place you become. So, yeah, the, the big challenge is just getting to a certain point where uh, – it's my job, as I've only been here for five months, but it's my job to, to give my professionals a, a direction. And we are getting to that point right now where uh, instead of getting pulled in 100 different directions, that I'm going to pick uh, some strategic initiatives and we're going to go after those. But, uh, you know, the government and folks out in the government should know that Altez is here to help them if they, if they need some migration assistance or they need modernization assistance with their applications. Uh, we are still the premier Army IT services uh, in the government. All right. That's a great place to leave it. Tim Hale, Director for Army Altest. Thanks so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Hey, thanks, Jared. Appreciate talking to you. Tim Hale is the director of Army Altes in Radford, Virginia. He joined us by phone from there. Another short break, and when we come back, we'll stick with Army technology, but pivot to electronic warfare. The Army's Rapid Capability Office is delivering some of its first capabilities along those lines to troops in Europe. This is on DoD on federalnewsradio.com at 1500 a.m. I'm Jared Serbian. Back on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM, this is On DoD. I'm Jared Serbu. And as I mentioned before the break, we're going to stick with Army technology, but move on to a little bit of news on the electronic warfare front. That's obviously a capability set the Army's been working hard to regrow for the last several years, and it's been one of the first projects for the service's new Rapid Capabilities Office. Some of the first deliverables from that effort are now being deployed in Europe. My colleague Scott Bassioni spoke with Doug Wiltsey, the director of RC and Colonel Marty Hagenston, the office's project manager for electronic warfare and cyber. The first voice you'll hear is Doug Wiltsey. So for the last 16 years, 17 years, you know, the U.S. has been at war in a counterinsurgency fight 
um, with all of its assets focused on winning in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, so in that time, our near-peer competitors have, have studied our concepts, have studied our uh, tactics, techniques, and procedures, and, and they've invested in areas where they believe they can, they can defeat our strengths. And so if you look at Russia and, and as, as the capability for electronic warfare that they demonstrated in the Ukraine, uh, they've developed a very powerful capability. And so the, the reason that we're pursuing a very uh, fast uh, development and, and, and production and fielding of electronic warfare capability is to be able to provide our troops with a capability that will allow them to fight and win in the European theater. The whole effort was driven by the commanders and the units over there. It drove the whole process. Um, I think the commanders and the units understand that it's another tool to help them create the desired outcomes that they're after on the battlefield. You know, it's a, it's a step forward uh, to create those limited windows of superiority that they're really after to help shape their decisive operations. I can tell you that how EW is fought is very much a work in progress. These initial capabilities are really going to help with that. It's a positive step, and it get us, gets us out of that conundrum of taking risk in this mission area for, for just too long. Now, when it comes to these EW weapons, are they defensive, offensive? How much can you tell us about them without giving too much away to the Russians? We focused initially on enabling the ability to do ground maneuver. And so the capabilities are both uh, electronic sensing, electronic support, and there is electronic attack. The, the systems are broken into systems that can be dismountable and are mountable, and then there is a, a C2 system that brings uh, all the sensors back together to provide um, the, the soldiers a picture of what's out in front of them. Colonel, could you explain what the troops are seeing from the adversaries in terms of electronic warfare? Sure, I, I sure can. So I, I think that the first step is, you know, you don't fight uh, adversary electronic warfare with electronic warfare. You fight it with other things. Um, so the, the, the capabilities that we are putting out there that the commanders on the ground wanted were the ability to tell when somebody is doing something to them, the ability to detect and find when something is affecting them and actually visualize it and see it, because if they can't visualize it and see it and put it together, they can't put effects or execute mission command to do maneuver on those things. So the ability to detect and find signals of interest, we call that electronic warfare support in both a dismounted and mounted configuration, very much gets after that. The other ability that they wanted to have in a limited nature is the ability to deny, degrade, disrupt adversary emitters as well. We have those in both dismounted and mounted uh, configurations, and we call that electronic attack. So you're going to find from a dismounted level, you can imagine that it's, it's smaller at a mounted level, probably larger with more power. The thing that pulls it all together is this, the, the, the C2 system, the ability to command and control assets, provide situational understanding, visualize to support that commander scheme and maneuver. These capabilities are integrated, and they are they're designed to be brigade and below kinds of activities very much in the tactical fight. So these things are kind of organized into, and, and I'll call them what the commanders call them. They call them platoons right now, which is good. So they're integrated into platoons in limited quantities. So they really can figure out how to fight this stuff. 
and then figure out how the rest of their organization and their training and their TPPs needs to follow to really get this to be effective, a, a real combat multiplier for them on the battlefield. What kind of training are these soldiers going through to be capable in these electronic warfare weapons and capabilities? So I guess I'll, I'll speak to the training because it's actually underway right now. It's, it's actually finishing up, and I just came back from over there last Sunday. So the training progression, and it is a progression um, because a lot of the uh, personnel that go in there have mixed aptitudes, but many of them are very, uh, very, um, they're, they're experts in their field. They already have some basis by which to go. But at the end of the day, the training progression really starts from some theory, some signal theory and RF theory that they have to understand, which most of them do, but it, we reinforce that. It gets to specific system buttonology and configuration of the system, like for the dismounted system and mounted platforms. There's certain things they must do to operate it correctly. There is a situational training exercises that kind of pulls them all together, which you could call how they're going to fight it, so some tactics. And then there's staff integration, and that's really on the unit, is how they're going to integrate these things into the processes that they have going on right now, like fires, intel, and operations. This training progression right now has taken probably about, well, it has taken three weeks to kind of complete. It will culminate next week with the situational training exercise, but it doesn't stop there. They have to continue to train because these are very much perishable skills. When it comes to electronic warfare, where do you see things going in the future, not only in the Army, but also in DOD and the other services? Across the department. Uh, the ability to uh, find targets through the electromagnetic spectrum just gives us an additional capability um, to, to, to be able to find and then engage targets. Uh, it, clearly, the department has, it, has uh, divided amongst uh, the Air Force, the Navy, and the Army, certain responsibilities for electronic warfare. I think the reestablishment of it in the Army is just going to give us another uh, another tool in the toolkit that will allow us to fight and win as we go forward with adversaries. That's Doug Wiltsey, the director of the Army's Rapid Capabilities Office, along with Colonel Marty Haginston, the RCO's project manager for electronic warfare and cyber. They spoke with Federal News Radio Scott Massioni about the RCO's initial deployments of EW capabilities in Europe. We'll have more of their conversation on Federal News Radio in the coming days. You'll find it at federalnewsradio.com. Earlier in the hour, we spoke with Tim Hale, the director of Army Altez, about how the Army's using that facility in Radford, Virginia, to modernize its legacy applications and get them ready for commercial cloud environments. If you missed that conversation, we'll post this week's entire show at federalnewsradio.com slash on DOD, or you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or Podcast One. That's it for this week's edition of On DOD. Thanks as always for joining us. I'm Jared Serbu. So long. You've been listening to On DOD with Federal News Radio DOD reporter Jared Serbu. If you missed any part of this program, you can hear the entire show or any of our weekly programs anytime at federalnewsradio.com. On DOD, only on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com.